coverage. This is the PFT PM podcast. And now your host, Mike Florio. August 22 PFT PM podcast. What's up, people? 15 days until the regular season begins. I tried to wait to start this today until some indication emerged as to this conference call that was happening regarding the helmet rule. Haven't heard anything yet. It may be that everyone took a pinky swear, pinky oath, pinky swear, blood oath, cone of silence. Is it cone of silence or code of silence? I think it's code of silence, but people say cone of silence. Isn't the cone of silence from like, get smart, cone of silence? I don't know. What the hell? I don't know what I'm talking about. I never do know what I'm talking about. This is one of those days where I'm just going to talk. Unfettered, unrestrained, my therapy session for the week where I just get to slow down, press pause on the constant churning and generation of blurbs for PFT. I'm not complaining. I love my job, but my God, the days can move very quickly. We start 6 a.m. with PFT Live. And typically, I try to get up 5.15, 5.20. Quick shower, shave, toupee adjustment. Try to get one story done before the show starts. Ideally, find a way to sneak in another story during the breaks in the show, although the last two hours, that's not easy because we do little TV elements. Tape some videos right after the show. Do a couple of radio segments most days. I try to be very selective on the radio I do now that I got three hours of it, plus this to do. I do the segments where I enjoy the hosts, and I think it's fun, and I think it's a good market for the exposure. Crank stories for the rest of the morning. Make phone calls, take phone calls, text, etc. Quick lunch. And then go until I need a nap. Someone, I think it was John Lopez. I don't know if he's still with 610 in Houston. He was a columnist at the Chronicle. When I started doing the morning shift, he said, you know, people ask me when do I sleep during the day? Because he had an early morning radio show down there. And he said, when I'm sleepy. So I usually go into the afternoon until I feel like I just need to recharge. And I nap for one hour. I do five and one, five at night, one during the day. And usually what happens is that one hour, like if I hit it right around one hour, I feel like I've slept three. So then it's back to another story or two, get ready for the podcast. If we're doing it, do the podcast. Why am I saying all this shit? You don't care. I'm giving the whole breakdown of my day and no one's even asked for the breakdown of my day. I guess I'm just in a reflective mood right now and I'm wondering why do I do this every day? Number one, I like it. Number two, it pays fairly well. And number three, what the hell else would I do? I was reflecting on practicing law the other day. My God, I don't miss that. And it's an honorable profession despite current events. (laughs) Despite, Despite things you may be reading everywhere you look, it is an honorable profession. And when you're litigating, when you're fighting for the rights of others, individuals who otherwise would have no voice, that was very rewarding for me the last nine years of my practice. The first half, it was, and I'm not ashamed about this. I had to learn somewhere. And when you get out of law school at the age of 25, just about to turn 26, and you have debt, and you want to make money, and There are law firms out there, and the way it works is the better you do in law school, the more likely you are to land with a firm that pays good money. And the way it works is coming out of school, you make the most money going to work for the firms that represent the corporate interest because the corporations have the ability to pay the bills that 
these big, large, successful firms generate. Cost-insensitive clients. I think I've used that term before. That's what the big firms look for. I was working for Jones Day, Revis, and Pogue right out of law school. 1,200 lawyers, something like that worldwide. Cost-insensitive clients. That's what the managing partner of the firm said when he visited the Pittsburgh office back in 93, 94, something like that. And so they have the money, and that's where you go. And after a while, it's like, you know, I don't know. I had a more idealistic view of what I'd be doing. I want to help people. Who am I helping? I'm helping the people who own this firm because I'm churning up hour after hour after hour after hour. They're paying my salary out of what I generate, and they're keeping the difference. And once I started doing the numbers, like, holy shit. I'm making a lot of money for somebody who isn't me. Then I ended up at a firm that operates under the same principle here in West Virginia. And again, look, there's a market for it. Corporations get sued. Corporations need guidance. Corporations believe they're in the right, even when they're in the wrong. And they'll pay good money for people who know how to defend them in situations where they insist they're right. The stuff that's going on in politics now, where no matter what the allegation is, people will deny it. That's the way the legal practice is. Everything is denied. Deny, deny, deny. Deny the allegation as it's written. I remember that line from a Green Day song. What is the song? Oh, God. American Eulogy? Off of the... What was that album? It's the one that came out in 2009 with Know Your Enemy. Deny the allegation as it's written. Effing lies. I mean, that's a common term in the legal profession. The, deni- the allegation is denied as it's written. Okay, well, what's the truth? <laughs> Good luck. So anyway, I don't know. I've been talking for 10 minutes about a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with football, but this is part of the therapy session. So for the three or four of you out there that actually listen to this, hey, this is what you get this one day a week where I just kind of talk about whatever I feel like talking about. Anyway, I didn't finish the full itinerary of my normal day. I'm not going to feel like I've completed the thought. I'm going to feel like something's wrong, that little that OCD element lurking in my brain is going to make me feel like for the rest of the day that I left the light on somewhere or left a door unlocked or left a car running, God forbid. So anyway, wake up from the nap. Feels like a new day at that point. Post a couple stories, do the PFTPM podcast. And then it's like, write a couple more stories, get in a workout, have dinner. I try to slow down a little bit at night. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not. And just depend upon what's going on watch some TV with Mrs. PFT, go to the local Mexican restaurant that we go to once a week with my brother-in-law and my nephew, smoke a cigar like we did last night. A couple of my brothers-in-law came over, and the dog is so funny. When she comes around and we're smoking cigars, she licks the smoke out of the air. And my wife is very concerned. This can't be good for her. It's like, well, it can't be good for us, but we do it. She likes it. She enjoys it. Let her lick the smoke out of the air. I mean, she's only going to live 10 or 11 years anyway. Let her enjoy them. That really still does depress me. And that's son of a bitch stats. Before we got the dog, I was already obsessing over the day that I was going to have to carry the dog into the vet so the dog can be put down. I don't want to get attached to the dog. And here we are, we're attached to the dog. And it's like, oh God, the dog's going to die one day. And stats is like, oh, hey, maybe the dog will outlive you. Well, thanks. And the dog is going to be big enough that the dog could carry me to the vet for the day the vet puts me down. All right. There's news in the NFL. Steve Keim is back after his suspension for his extreme DUI arrest north of .15 BAC. 
I think that Michael Bidwell is going to take a dim view of this guy going forward. And I like Steve Kime, but there's no excuse for driving with that level or any level in this day and age. Either you're with someone who can drive or you can make an arrangement for someone to pick you up who can drive you home. Or you just wait where you are until you're damn sure after you have cut yourself off that your blood alcohol concentration has gotten to the point where you are fine. That's always the last resort, I would think, because if you're under the influence, your judgment is impaired, and I wouldn't trust your judgment if it's impaired to come to the conclusion in the exercise of your impaired judgment that you're okay to drive. I don't like that. I'd rather have the arrangements made to get another ride home. And if you think you're going to be drinking to excess, stay home. Why do you want to be out? If you're having enough to drink to the point where you're over the line, why do you want to be out? Be where you're going to be. So there is, I think, a fair expectation that players, coaches, GMs, owners, everyone, anyone in this day and age, there is no excuse for it. I remember 10 years ago, there was this great debate about how the NFL had a service available for the players to use and the players are very skittish about it because they're going to report it back to the NFL. And the next thing you know, I'm going to be thrown in the program. And look, now you just press the freaking app on your phone, Uber or Lyft. And they pick you up. It's great. It's like you don't even pay for it. You press the button. They pick you up. Hey, are you Jim? Yeah, are you Mike? Yeah, all right, good. You're not going to kill me, are you, Jim? No, no, you're not going to kill me, are you, Mike? No, no. Okay, we're good. Take me back to my house. I think they even have it here in West Virginia. Not that I, I mean... I never leave the house anyway. We'll go out to eat, and I'll drink one glass of wine, maybe two if we're there for two, three hours, and then, you know, and as all, I don't have a standard anymore, so my wife can drive the car. She never really drinks all that much of anything. So it's just you got to make you got to make better plans, and and I think the higher you are in an organization, the greater the responsibility to set an example for everyone else to not do stupid shit. The Baltimore Ravens are worried Lamar Jackson is taking too many hits. Marty Morningweg knows a thing or two about that. Mike Vick took too many hits in Philly. Too many quarterbacks take too many hits. And even Andrew Luck, he was talking the other day about returning to action for his second game, going against that Ravens defense, and he got sacked by Terrell Suggs and hit his elbow on the ground. It was reminiscent of the way that my elbow struck the ground when I messed up my shoulder or words to that effect. And he was happy that everything was fine. It's like, don't you understand you're playing Russian roulette every time you take a hit like that? Sometimes you'll be fine. Sometimes you won't be fine. The only way to ensure that you will be fine is to not take the hit. Back in the years when I wouldn't fly, that was my stupid-ass logic for not flying. Well, I know the chances of dying in an aircraft accident are point oh 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 whatever 1%, but I know how to make them zero. When I was in college and I was working in California in a co-op program at Chevron and trying to decide, do I want to live out there? I mean, they have earthquakes. I was in an earthquake out there. It was freaky. Middle of the night, Easter Sunday, 1986. The world starts shaking. What the hell is going on? I hear a bunch of car alarms going off. It's like, what is that? Oh, they have earthquake warnings on their cars. No, the alarms are going off because the cars got shook, shaken, whatever. I always doubt my conjugation now after hanging out with Chris Sims for the last year because he's got very creative conjugation. So anyway, I remember having a conversation with someone who had lived out there for years. You know, this whole earthquake thing, kind of a concern. 
oh, well, you know, when it's your time, it's your time. Well, yeah, I agree with that. But you know one way to engineer how it's not your time? Don't live where the earthquakes are. Then it's not my time. If I have the foresight not to live where the earthquakes are, won't die in the earthquake. And I guess, like, if I'm meant to die at that moment, the moment the earthquake happens, if that's some arranged event for the Grim Reaper to harvest a certain number of souls, I guess I'll just die wherever I am anyway, but I'd prefer to not be in the earthquake. Anyway, boy, this is really off the rails today. And this has been maybe 13 minutes. This is probably the worst one of these I've done. I may just scrap the whole thing. If you're listening to this, you'll know that I didn't. So, Lamar Jackson like every quarterback, needs to reduce the hits that he takes. It's that simple. Reduce the hits you take. Know how to run out of bounds. Know when to get down. Know when to live to fight another day. And the very rare quality. And I remember when we interviewed Russell Wilson during the 2017 season. And I told him that he reminds me, at a time when, you know, the knee-jerk is Fran Tarkenton, he reminds me of Barry Sanders. And he was surprised. I, I don't know, maybe he was just being polite because he is extremely polite. If nothing else, he's very polite. But yeah, you're Barry Sanders. And I almost slipped into a Chris Farley thing because it's like, oh God, now i got to explain to this guy how he is. He knows how he is, and I have to explain to him how he is. But the bottom line is this. He knows how to take hits in a way that doesn't injure him. He positions his body the right way at the right time, and he doesn't take that big hit. You never saw Barry Sanders take a big hit. You never see Russell Wilson take a big hit. He had that injury issue a couple of years ago where he had the ankle... And then the ankle made him susceptible to the knee, and he was hobbling around. Other than that, the guy knows how to avoid injury. And that's my only exception to the belief that quarterbacks should never take hits. Only take hits if you are in that very small percentage that knows how to position your body instinctively to not get injured. Otherwise, don't take hits. Run to where the people aren't. The Aaron Rodgers approach. Aaron Rodgers is a mobile quarterback. You never see him, when he runs, take a hit. He takes his hits behind the line of scrimmage. He thinks he's indestructible. He took that hit from Anthony Barr last year, held on to the ball, deliberately knew the hit was coming, held on to the ball just long enough for Martellus Bennett to break open so he would run with the ball and gain a big amount of yardage, and he was ready to do that until Bennett dropped it. But you have to avoid hits. You never know which hit's going to be the one it results in an injury that knocks you out for the rest of the season, for a month, for however long it may be. How about George Iloka signing with the Vikings and wearing number 28? Now, he says he doesn't expect to continue wearing it and that he'll switch to a different number once the rosters are set. Now, of course, that presumes that he's going to make it onto the final roster. You know, these guys who show up late in the process... There's no guarantee they're going to make it onto the 53-man roster. Adrian Peterson, no guarantee he's going to make it onto the 53-man roster in Washington. No guarantee George Iloka is going to do enough to save himself a roster spot in Minnesota. Incredible depth at the safety position. So he'll switch from 28 to something else. So don't buy your Iloka 28 jersey just yet. And I wouldn't buy your Adrian Peterson 26 jersey in D.C. just yet. I'd want to see if he makes it onto the week one roster. Hard knocks. Not as rollicking last night as it had been. How did they not bring us more Bob Wiley earlier in the series? I still don't know how that guy fits in a Maserati. I wanted to see a better angle of him getting out when they went to the team hotel the night before Friday night's home game against the Bills. 
But what a character. He's great. The whole idea of stretching. Stretching's overrated. They didn't stretch during World War One and World War Two. Just great. Todd Haley's been entertaining in that. And I'm... I don't know. Why should I start choosing my words carefully now? I still don't get it with Hugh Jackson. I like Hugh. And I think Hugh has value to a football team in the right role. It's not head coach. And when he says to Des Bryant, we're going to have the greatest turnaround in the history of sports, if that happens, it's because of him. I don't get it. I do not understand it. That is the great contradiction of this entire edition of Hard Knocks, and that's what makes it more compelling to me, because every time somebody says, we are doing things a different way, yes, with the coach who did things the way that he did them the last two years when they went 1-31, it's going to be the greatest turnaround in the history of sports, thanks to the hole I dug. I dug us such a deep hole, I am going to climb us out of it this year. We are where we are because of what I wasn't able to do the last two years, and this year I'm going to be able to do what I haven't been able to do, despite no tangible evidence that I'll be able to do what I haven't been able to do. And even if the team is 6-10, and 10, I'm going to think, how much better would they be if they had changed coaches? And if they go 10-6, and 6, how much better would they have been if they had changed coaches? That question is always going to be there. I don't care how successful they are. Anything short of winning the Super Bowl, I'm going to think, well, they would have won the Super Bowl if they had a different coach. Hugh Jackson, the talent is so much better this year. Even Hugh Jackson couldn't lose more than four games. And if they win the Super Bowl, I'll think, well, it would have been even easier if they had had a different coach. I'm sorry, but when you go 0-16, there has to be consequences. You know, we hear that every year that there's a big election. Elections have consequences. That always sounds so ominous. Oh, elections have consequences. Like, screw you. Hey, you know what? Elections have consequences. You will have your pinky toe removed from each foot. Those are the consequences. Well, going 0-16 should have consequences, shouldn't it? I mean, what in the world kind of a spell did he put on Jimmy and D. Haslam that they did not fire him for going 0-16? Wouldn't you expect, and this isn't about Hugh or any other specific individual, wouldn't you expect if you go 0-16, you get fired? There is no one else in the organization more responsible for 0-16 than the head coach, and yet the head coach still has a job. And does it ever really get mentioned? It's only implied. It's necessarily implied in the circumstances anytime they say, we're doing things a new way, we're moving in the right direction, we're turning it around. Yes, with the head coach that drove us into a ditch. And I feel the same way about Rod Marinelli. He should never be a head coach again in the NFL. Hugh Jackson should never be a head coach again in the NFL. No coach who goes 0-16 in today's NFL should ever be a head coach again. I don't care what you do after that. Once you go 0-16, you are done. That should be the rule. There's enough people out there who can do it. That's the thing. This isn't like, you know, there are only so many franchise quarterbacks and this guy's a franchise quarterback, so we got to keep him. There are so many people out there who could be effective head coaches. What does Hugh Jackson do? Let's be real about this. And I'm sorry, Hugh, if you're listening to this or anybody from the Browns who's going to be pissed off and call me up or send me a nasty text message because God forbid a team that goes 0-16 should not be criticized. But think about this. Watch Hard Knocks. Go back and watch the three episodes if you haven't seen them. What in the hell is Hugh Jackson saying that is making anybody say that guy is on his way to Canton? How is the guy still employed? I don't get it. And how are Browns fans so numb to it? 
have we all become, oh, and this is where I'm going to get myself in trouble, even more trouble. Have we all become so numbed reality and normal expectations of the way the world used to be by the way the world has been the last two years that we just don't demand anything anymore? What's wrong with demanding accountability? What's wrong with standing up and saying, I'm sorry, sir, you forfeited your ability to continue in the job that you hold. There are plenty of other qualified candidates who can do what you do a hell of a lot better than you do it. And if they do it worse than you do it, it's really not going to show up in the results because the results can't get much worse than those that you have generated. Please pack up your personal effects and get the hell out of here. I, man, and where have the Haslam's been in Hard Knocks? Three episodes in, have we seen them at all? Wouldn't it be great for somebody to sit down with the Haslam's? You know, somebody that they would actually talk to. One of the reporters that they don't hate. Because God forbid people point out the flaws in the way that the team has been run on their watch over the last six years. Every fan in Cleveland should expect that and want that. They should want accountability because you can't fire the owners. So all you can do is shame the owners into doing a better job of running the team. There should be somebody who sits down with the Haslam's and asks them together in the same room, why in the world did you not fire the coach that went 0-16 last year and 1-15 the year before that? Why? What did he say? What did he do? What got you to blame Sashi Brown and not him? In what universe is it okay to continue with a guy who's 1-31 over two years? In an NFL where there is so much parity that the talent levels from the best teams to the worst teams are nothing like they used to be. The spread is not there. Look at how many close games they had last year. And again, what are we seeing in Hard Knocks that is making us say Hugh Jackson is the embodiment of Vince Lombardi? What is it? Is there anything? It's all just a bunch of cliches and platitudes and aspirational statements and bullshit. That's all it is. There's no presence there. And I know the players love him. Maybe they love him because he isn't as hard on them as another coach would be. He gives them days off in practice so they don't have soft tissue injuries. Are they going to hang that banner? Game one against the Steelers? No soft tissue injuries from 2016 through 2017. Even the Colts wouldn't hang that banner. Oh, I need a nap. I already had my nap. I need another nap. I don't know why I feel bad about being critical. I mean, that's what we do, right? And I feel like I'm the only one. Like, in the months before everybody realized what a shit show this new helmet rule is, potentially, if it gets applied, you know, as it's written... Like, I'm the only one who is incredulous about the idea that a guy who's 1-31 in 31 still has a job as a head coach in the NFL. When there are so many qualified candidates! That's what I keep coming back to. There are so many qualified candidates. College level, NFL level, former coaches. There are so many guys who want back in. I don't get it. And if I'm a Browns fan, if I'm a resident of Cleveland, or anywhere in the Northeast Ohio area. I would be demanding it. Why aren't you people revolting? You had your parade. I guess that made you feel better and that's okay. And we just move forward. Why are you not demanding answers? And you need to demand them from the media that you consume. Those people need to be shamed into sitting down with the Haslam's and asking tough questions. Why is this guy still the coach? What are we trying to do here? But see, there, there's this haze of, oh, everything's going to be great now, and we're turning it around. Oh, we're going to go 5-11. and 11. How many teams would stand for 5-11? and 11? And Browns fans are supposed to be happy if they go 5-11. and 11. Give me a break. Give me a break. 
Break me off a piece of that applesauce. This Bob Lamey thing. Lamey is the appropriate word for it. I knew. When the guy retires, air quotes, retires, after he's already worked one of the preseason games, I knew there was something going on. And I didn't want to speculate on anything. You know, people are like, oh, he got me too Well, I don't know. If he did something that he shouldn't do, then he should be. But I don't want to suggest he did something he shouldn't do. I don't want to, you know, you never know what the circumstances are. You don't know what's going to happen, what's going to come out. But I remember thinking, something, there's something more to this story. And I, out of respect to him and the circumstances, I don't want to start recklessly speculating that he did something he shouldn't have done, that he said something he shouldn't have said, that he behaved in a way he shouldn't have behaved, but that's what happened. And the Colts make this big deal about it. Jim Irsay praising him. That stupid tweet, we lo- we're going to lose a legend day, like somebody's on their deathbed. Bob Lamey is retiring. Yeah, he's, re- he's resigning. Because if he doesn't resign, you're going to fire him. And, you know, it's sad, but there are consequences, right? Back to what we're talking about with Hugh Jackson. There are consequences for not doing your job effectively when there are other people who can do the job. Think of how heartless the NFL is. Every year, rosters drop from 90 to 53. 37 guys on every team in every city are going to be told, leave. Coming up in the next week and a half. Because there are too many people who want to do the job than there are spots for people who can do the job. Well, there are too many people who can coach at a high level. And if you have somebody who isn't getting it done, you make the change. I keep coming back to that. God, there's something wrong with me today or every day. Anyway, this lamey thing. I mean, look, I feel bad for the guy. He's 80 years old. And here's the reality. When you get on and, and, you know, I know it's coming for me too. And I hope to live long enough to have this happen. But I think there's some biological thing where the filter starts to go away. And you say things that you otherwise wouldn't have said when you were not 75 or 80 or whatever the case may be. Guy dropped an F-bomb during a game a couple of years ago, and he just gets excitable. And, I mean, look, Lee Corso had that F-bomb on the air seven years ago, and everybody thought it was charming. I mean, if I would do something like that during PFT Live, I don't think anybody would think it was charming. I'd be out of a job like that. But Corso's done it long enough that he gets the benefit of the doubt. And it's that unspoken thing. You tiptoe around it out of respect to the elderly. Issues of inability to drive the way you used to. You don't have the filter you used to have. People, And it's like we see ourselves, right? Once you get on the wrong side of 40, you start to begin to realize, yeah, you know what, eventually, if I'm lucky, I'm going to be on the wrong side of 50, and then I'll be on the wrong side of 60, and then I'll be on the wrong side of 70, and at some point, I'm going to be doing these things that I am trying to patiently tolerate and the people around me who are doing those things because their age is advancing, and I hope that people will cut me some slack when I'm in that same spot. So, regardless, I don't take any pleasure in being right. I just knew there was something more to this story. And it's just odd in hindsight the way that the Colts decided to handle it. Because did they not think the truth was going to come out? Same mindset as we have with this helmet rule. They jammed it through back in March without letting anyone know ahead of time what this rule was, what it would mean. Did they not think we were going to figure it out? Do they think we're stupid? Maybe they do. I just don't think they cared. They wanted to jam it through. They wanted the rule to be in place. And now that it's in place, you're going to need 24 votes or more to reverse it. 
All right, let me just answer some questions. My God, I've worn myself out. I didn't, it's like, hey, hey, what am I going to talk about today? There really isn't much to talk about. And I started scrolling through the website. It's like, man, there's a lot to talk about. Is there anything else from Hard Knocks I wanted to mention? That Brad Paisley thing. Brad, I'm not buying, and I know fellow West Virginian, you, you get the West Virginia privilege. He grew up in Glendale, which is like 10 minutes from where I grew up. But, but don't show up at Browns camp and act like you've been a lifelong Browns fan. And like you're that eight-year-old boy that was a Browns fan, a Brian Sype fan or whatever. This is a dream come true. Dude, you've achieved a lot. I'd like to think that if you're Brad Paisley and you've achieved what he's achieved, going to Browns training camp does not fall within the classification of dreams realized. And I kind of like to think that at some point before right now, in the scope of your career, you'd have had a chance to go to Brown's training camp. See, I'm I'm very skeptical that because the cameras are there, it's a little free publicity. It's a little Brad Paisley infomercial. You get five minutes of national TV time just for showing up at something that, hey, you know, I've been thinking about going to Brown's training camp for the last 20 years. Oh, this year HBO's there? I'm going. Dream come true. And, and, and when Joel Batonio walks over to him with that 75, that huge 75, and Joel Batonio's gushing like Chris Farley. Oh, I'm a huge fan. Oh, that's great. What's your name? Joel Batonio. Oh, Joel. Like, like it's a fan. Because that's what they do. Well, my name is Joel Batonio. Well, Joel, if you work really hard and you stay in school, maybe one day you'll be famous too. I just think, look, I'm always looking for bullshit. And again, I give the guy the West Virginia benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I, I can only imagine what I'd be saying if I didn't. But it, 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 you can't be a diehard Browns fan. You can't have been a fan of the team since you were eight years old and act like it's a dream come true to go to camp and not know who Joel Batonio is. It doesn't fit. You must not acquit. Wait, if it doesn't fit, you must, nah, whatever. Question and answer time. PFTPM Posse. Won't these rules cause more scrutiny by the government with the legalization of gambling when this affects the outcome of the games with lots of money wagered and people in question ask if 345 Park Avenue was talking to the ref in crucial moments seems to hurt their ongoing independence. Hey, that's one of the concerns I had with this rule from the moment it was implemented. It is another vague and hazy rule that can affect the outcomes of games because on one play they see the lowering of the helmet and the illegal contact with the helmet and they flag it and they kill a 50-yard touchdown run. And on another play with a 60-yard touchdown pass, it happens and they miss it, affects the outcome of the game. They should be so concerned with legalized gambling on the early front of what it's going to be. And I think it's going to change everything. They should not be interjecting more ways to have potential outcome-determinative mistakes by officials. That's why they need to embrace replay for this. Sean McVay's on board. I'd say plenty of coaches would be on board for this. That's what they need. That's what they need to be concerned about. And I understand the concern. The concern ultimately is, I believe, they don't want to have catastrophic injuries. And when you're in that posture with your head down, flat back, head down, eyes looking at the grass, if you ram into something in that posture, you can break your neck. That's what Ryan Shazier did. They don't want that again, and they don't want something worse than that. They don't want a death on the field. That's what they're trying to do. They won't say that for a variety of reasons. First of all, can you imagine if they would acknowledge, 
well, you know, we put this rule in place because we don't want anyone to die on the field. Look at what the headlines would be. They're smart enough not to say that. I believe that's what they're trying to avoid. This isn't about trickling down safer techniques. Little kids don't play football like that. And little kids, I don't think, you know, there's a point where in high school, your bodies are big enough where you can inflict serious damage on yourself or someone else. Eight, nine, ten-year-old kids that shouldn't be playing anyway. You shouldn't play until you're at least upper middle school. My kid didn't play until he was in the seventh grade, and even then I was a little skittish about it. But little kids aren't going to, they're not going to muster the force necessary to break their necks. At least I, I don't know. I haven't seen any studies on this, and the problem is the serious injuries that happen at the lower levels of the sport don't get nearly the coverage that they would if they'd happen at the college or the pro level. But I, I can't imagine little kids can, can inflict that kind of, of force on themselves and harm to themselves. But I think that's what they're trying to avoid here. And they're willing to undermine the integrity of the game and have bad calls and have ticky-tack fouls. And I hope that what comes out of this conference call today is a commitment to make it a more focused and specific play, a more focused and specific rule. Top of the helmet, for example. No flag for incidental contact. Let Al Riveron use that pipeline to the game sites and talk to the officials. They're not going to change the language of the rule because to do so would be to admit error. But if you can tweak the way it's going to be enforced and it avoids what we've seen so far in the preseason, then so be it. And, and, you know, I said this on the show today at PFT Live. I don't like this whole idea of over-officiating a rule in the preseason. Just officiate the rule. Get it right. Use it as practice. Err on the side of throwing the flag. You're setting the stage to make an error when the time comes to get it right. All right, what else do we have here? PFTPM Posse and Matt Yvonne, Matt in Beantown. Since a third of the players won't make a practice squad, do you see an issue with player compensation being roughly 2000 per week during training camp in the preseason, especially since we fans are paying full price for them and NFL assumingly is paid full price by networks and sponsors? I, I Look, I, I'm not worried about how much guys make in training camp. They're auditioning. They're getting paid a per diem. They're getting paid a small amount. And the way it works is the revenue that flows through the gates in the preseason, it's all part of the, the pie that gets carved up between the league and the union, and it goes into the salary cap. But when you look at the raw expenses versus revenues of the preseason, the preseason is very profitable. But that money still goes into the pot that determines what the salary cap is and how much the players who make it to the 53-man roster will be paid. Leapers 500, have you seen the Beto O'Rourke candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas speech about the anthem issue? Is this something the league can build on to marginalize the president who will pick on them all the more as he faces greater challenges legally and politically? Yeah, it's a great four-minute clip from Now This News. I saw Kurt Warner had retweeted it. I retweeted his retweet. And I'm sure somebody else has retweeted my retweet of his retweet. And then somebody retweets that retweet of the retweet of the retweet. And this thing has gotten around. Four minutes, 11 seconds. It's worth watching. But here's the thing. The fact that it's an issue in the race between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz in Texas, it underscores something I've been saying as relates to this idea that just ignore the president because eventually he won't be in office. It doesn't matter. He has discovered plutonium by accident. Political plutonium. This is going to be an issue forever until the NFL and the NFLPA come to an agreement that there will be no protests of any kind during the anthem and guys won't be staying in the locker room. 
politicians of a certain ideology have understood they can turn this into something that wins for them. And even though Beto O'Rourke makes a ton of sense, you're not going to change the minds of the people who say this is disrespectful. And Beto O'Rourke's approach is, I understand that. And it's your right. It's uniquely American to think that the people who do this are disrespecting the flag. You're allowed to think that. And you're also allowed to engage in that protest and think that it's not disrespecting the flag. But it doesn't make you un-American to engage in the protest itself. But it doesn't make you un-American to think that people who engage in the protest are un-American. This is the marketplace of ideas. This is the freedom that we have. We have the freedom to be wrong. It just irritates people that you have politicians who know what they are doing when they hijack these issues as a button that they press to distract their base and manipulate their base. That's the thing that I think bothers reasonably minded people more than anything else. Do you not realize that you are being lied to and misled? And I don't know, maybe the rest of us are being lied to and misled. That's what the people who we think are being lied to and misled may be thinking. We're not being lied to and misled. You're being lied to and misled. It's a dangerous attitude. I mean, I've been paying at least casual attention to politics since I was a little kid. And I had no interest in getting into it, but, you know, I always felt an obligation. I don't know. And it wasn't an obligation, like something I didn't want to do. I just was interested. You know, when, when you're in a household that has a newspaper and a TV, there will be from time to time, especially when there are only three channels, news programs, discussion of the news, understanding of the news. And I just was always interested. And I just don't remember a time like this. And maybe I was insulated from it back in the 70s with Vietnam and Richard Nixon and all of that. But I remember being aware of what was going on with Nixon. I remember all of that. I remember when he resigned. But, you know, I didn't understand the nuances. I still don't. But it just feels different now. And, uh, we, just, you know, we just need to find a way to come together. But even if we come together like we did after 9-11, it's going to be temporary anyway. If anything, it's a break from this constant stress and strain of people calling each other names and you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're an idiot, no, you're an idiot, whatever the case may be. Big Jordy 3000 has a conspiracy theory. NFL instituted helmet rule to purposely and knowingly make the game ugly and unwatchable so that players and fans would uproar against safety. The league can change the rule and claim moral high ground. We made it safe. Y'all hated it. It's not our fault. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. They're trying to avoid a catastrophic injury. You know, every once in a while, I'll see someone say that the NFL doesn't want to get sued again by the players. It's not getting sued again by the players. It's not because there's nothing at this point that players could sue for. That was one of the arguments made by the special master who presided over the settlement of the concussion lawsuit. And it was five years ago this month that they finally settled it. Well, not finally. It took a little while after that to finally get it settled, but that was when they worked out the original compromise. The special master had a question and answer sheet that was published by the federal court in Philadelphia. And one of the questions was, why is this, or God, yeah, I was going well there until I forgot what it was the question was. It was along the lines of, won't these lawsuits continue? And the answer was no, because at this point, no one can credibly claim that they don't know the risks of playing football. It's one thing to say you lied to us and you hid this information in the 70s, 80s, 90s, whenever. No one at this point can say they don't understand the risks. 
they don't understand that they could get chronic traumatic encephalopathy. They don't understand that they could have serious health problems later in life. So what are they going to sue for? They have a union that is representing them as it relates to the rules, the safety rules. And if you think that there's an unsafe condition, you work with the union to iron out the unsafe condition. We'll be back with more PFTPM after this quick break. Hey friends, Paul and Andrew here from the Leisureman. We're here with Heidi King, Deputy Administrator for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA. They're working hard to change habits and save lives. You know, Heidi, we hear a lot about drunk driving, but with so many states legalizing marijuana use, tell us about the problem of driving while drug impaired. Sure, people need to understand that impairment is impairment, whether the drug is legally prescribed or illegal. Driving while drug impaired poses a serious threat. Is the problem getting worse? Yes. Marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled from 2007 to 2015. In NHTSA's roadside survey conducted in 2013 to 2014, 20% of the sampled weekend nighttime drivers in traffic tested positive for potentially impairing drugs. Thank you, Heidi. For more information about the Drive Sober or Get Pulled Over and the new If You Feel Different, You Drive Different campaigns, visit nitsagovernor slash drive sober. That's N-H-T-S-A dot gov slash drive sober. Tom Marshall, a.k.a. at a Red Zone Alk. Is it important that Des Bryant finds a new team before roster cutdowns, or should he wait for a desperate team during the season? Look, I, let, let's, let's think about this. I've made the point that it's already too late for Des Bryant to make an impact this year. If he doesn't sign before week one, and a team loses a starting receiver. Let's say it's Michael Crabtree and the Ravens, because that's where I think Des Bryant would have signed if the Cowboys had cut him back in the middle of March. And he should be pissed that they didn't cut him then. They waited a month, and it made it harder for him to get a job. They knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew he wasn't going to jump on the first offer that comes his way. He was going to want more money than what a team would offer, and he would wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and finally he'd get to a point where it's too late for him to go anywhere and make an impact because he's been in one offense his entire career, one position, the X in that offense, split out, wide left, and to learn a new offense, new terminology on the fly. And I've said before, it's like changing a tire on a moving car, and the reality is the car keeps going faster and faster and faster and faster. So, Crabtree gets injured. What do the Ravens do? Do they call up the guy who doesn't know their playbook, doesn't know their personnel, doesn't know their terminology, doesn't know anything? Or do they say, next man up, next man up? And then you move a guy up, you slide a guy over from the practice squad who knows the system, knows the terminology, and you do it that way. What are you going to do? I know what I would do. I think the only place he's got a chance is Dallas. That if they have a rash of receiver injuries, they may bring him back. But the Joneses have made it clear, even though they think he'll be highly successful somewhere else, he ain't coming back here. I think that we're going to see week one come and go without Des Bryant on a team. That's what I think. And I don't think that, you know, now here's the other thing. Here's, here's when the window opens again. Once we get around Thanksgiving and we know who the playoff teams are going to be, I wouldn't be surprised if a team thinks we'll bring him in we won't expect anything out of him for the balance of the regular season. We'll treat that like his preseason. And then we'll have another weapon we can unleash when we get to January. That may be his next window. And who knows what happens? Who knows? Remember Darrell Rivas signed late in the year, joined the Chiefs, was available to them. I think it's kind of a, a similar track. So I hadn't thought of that until just now, which is I'm glad why we 
do these because it forces me to think of things I otherwise wouldn't think of. I think the window opens for him around Thanksgiving for a team that's a contender. All right, what else do we have here? Recliner QB with Rams head coach and coach of the year, Sean McVay, getting a Bose sponsorship and doing promotional interviews during such a busy time of the year, combined with so many stories about coaches living at the facility only for the appearance to show a change in the NFL's culture. Hashtag PFTPM posse. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. by. Look, I was glad we had Sean McVay. I thought it was great. But Doug Peterson, his book came out on Tuesday. They were pitching interviews of Doug Peterson before training camp opened. And, hey, Coach Peterson's available tomorrow if you'd like to interview him, if you'd like to book an interview. Tom, okay, I'd love to. Well, but you can't use this until August 21. It's like, but it's July. Well, I know, but the book comes out August 21. They want the interview to be embargoed until then. It's like, what am I going to ask him now that's going to be relevant in a month? Well, this is just the way they're doing it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We're not doing it. We declined it. It's like, what? What's the point? What's the point of doing an interview now that's got to sit in the can for four weeks? And he's welcome to come on anytime he wants. Well, he's going to be busy during training camp. Well, we'll wait till he's not busy. And I think Sean McVay shows us that these guys, look, they love to create the impression that they work 20 hours a day. I don't know. I think sometimes they make it harder than they need to. And I think sometimes they like this impression that they're indispensable and they work so hard and nobody works harder than me. You know, there's a sales job that goes on with the fans, with the media, and ultimately with the owner of the team. Gabe, 56 Life, you've expressed two different ways on how to fix a new tackling rule. Which way do you think is better long-term solution? Well, I've, I've thrown out a couple of different ideas. I think one way to fix the tackling rule is to make it a spearing rule, that it's a violation only when the top of the helmet is involved. That's what I think they should do. And also, no incidental helmet contact should be a violation. And I think they should replay review to make sure they don't make mistakes. Recliner QB, what's wrong with Terrell Price saying he had off-season ankle surgery. He's been getting ripped for his training camp performance and now we know why. Does Todd Bowles think there's competitive advantage to keeping it secret? Players may target it during games. I just think it's coaches being coaches. They want to keep that information under wraps whenever they can and there's no obligation to disclose any injury information during the preseason so we're not going to. And I think ultimately, yeah, they don't want to lose a good player because someone is drawing a target testing that injured area. That's what they call it. We're going to test that ankle. All that ankle had surgery, we're going to test it. But the problem for the players is people just think they suck. Well, I don't suck. I had a broken ankle. I had surgery on my on my ankle. That's why I haven't played very well. Oh, let's see what else we have going on here. I, I need to wrap this up. The dog, I didn't put the dog in her crate. And Mrs. PFT is not here. And I've been going 50 minutes. I have a feeling there's going to be a puddle of something down in the in the basement when I go down. I just hope that it's on the tile and not on the rug. Gong Show West, what was the worst job you ever had before you began your career as an attorney? The worst job is also one of the best jobs. I've talked about this before. Kentucky Fried Chicken, 1981 through 1983. That was a horrible job. And I don't know that you can make that job any better. There were at least 50 different ways you could have died in that kitchen or suffered serious injury. One of my friends poured the water that the corn soaked in at the end of the day 
into the sink and it ran down his leg and into his shoe and he had second degree burns on his feet. So I ended up working more than 40 hours. I was a junior in high school, junior or sophomore, junior in high school because I was 16. And I worked more than 40 hours while in school. Like, what the hell? Why my, what were my parents thinking? They let me do it. Well, you know, he wants to do it. And I did want to do it. That's the thing. I wanted to do it. It was a challenge. Oh, do you want an extra shift? Sure, I'll do it. And it taught me the value of busting my ass under challenging circumstances. And it also taught me, and I know I've said this before on the PFTPM podcast, once the manager started talking to me about becoming a manager and you could make a career out of this, I thought, man, I, I, I can't do this for 30 or 40 years. I can't work like you guys work. They're there 12 hours a day, five, six days a week. Sorry, I can't do this. And, you know, I always knew I was destined to go to college and I'd done well in school and I was always good at math and science, but I got clarity. You get moments of clarity in life. I got a moment of clarity the, the day that the, the boss at the KFC suggested I, I could be a manager of a KFC. No, no offense, but I ain't doing this, buddy. No friggin' way. I ain't going to go home every night smelling like chicken fat and grease. Oh, shortening the preferred term for the material that they use to cook the chicken to a very delicious taste that will clog your arteries is shortening. Mike likes dirt. Part of the special sauce in what you do is your law background. What do you see in A-flow that could be his secret ingredient when he inherits PFT? I don't know. He's got to figure that out. He's a lot nicer than I am. He's got a better sense of, I don't know, people than I do. And he's young. He's just getting started. He'll figure it out. That's the thing. At 21, you figure it out. He's got a long, hopefully he's got a long time before he has to figure it out. All right, I probably should wrap it up, although I said I was going to answer almost all the questions today. There were more than I thought there were going to be. C.J. Newman wants to know my favorite breakfast food. You know, I started back in, I love eggs, eggs, bacon, potatoes, and toast. That, that's my favorite breakfast food. But I started right after the season when I realized that somebody had shrunk my suits. I started eating that Special K protein bar every morning. That's been my breakfast all year, and here we are 15, 20 pounds later. My suits fit again. Thank you, Special K. Maybe they should be a sponsor of the PFTPM podcast. All right, what else do we have here? Apple 1, 2, 3, Apple 11. How much credit do you give Tom Coffin for the recent increase in the Jaguar success? I give him a ton of credit. He brought in that mindset, that attitude, that hard-nosed training camp they had last year that drove the veterans crazy. I think he is the guy that made this all happen. Brady wants to know what's more likely. Des plays eight games this season anywhere or Cleveland wins eight games. I think it's more likely that Cleveland wins eight games, although I wouldn't bet on it. All right, I probably should wrap it up. I, I want to go down there and make sure the dog has not indeed urinated all over the place. We're going to do this tomorrow. I'll answer some questions then. Thanks for your time. Enjoyed it as always. It's very therapeutic for me. Thanks for listening to my meanderings and ramblings for the first 25 minutes. Thank you for tolerating my rant about the Browns. Browns fans, wake up. Wake up. Demand. Well, I, I mean, it's kind of late now. Probably not a good idea to change coaches now, but... If there's another subpar year, demand that there be change because I think there are some talented players. And like I said, even if the team goes 5-11, and 6-10, and 7-9, I'm going to be thinking they would have been even better if they had made that coaching change. All right, have a great day. Check us out tomorrow, PFT Live. Chris Sims will be in the building, and we will be posting fresh content at profootballtalk.com around the clock. Have a great day. 
You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.